Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and associate professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I am so pleased to be interviewing Ashley Reamer and Tiffany Eiselhart about their new book, Exploring American Girlhood, through 50 Historic Treasures, which was published by Roman and Littlefield in 2021. Before I tell you a bit more about the book and introduce its authors, I want to take a moment to share with you that we're recording this interview on June 28, 2022, just four days after the Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe versus Wade, the landmark ruling that made abortion legal in the United States nearly 50 years ago. Needless to say, this is a difficult time to be a woman, little the less a feminist art historian in America and in the world right now. So I wanna thank both of my guests, especially today, for pushing forward and agreeing to come on the show as we had planned. At the very end of the book that they wrote, there's a line that really struck me. Ashley and Tiffany said that they hope the girls of the past will inspire the girls of today to pursue their dreams and to strive toward a nation where all are free and equal. I'd like to dedicate this interview to that sentiment of hope for the future. Okay, let me now turn to telling you a bit about my guests today. Ashley Reamer is the founder of Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. She's currently working on her PhD at the Australian National University, but she has worked as an art historian, curator, writer, and editor for over two decades. Her research focuses on girlhood in various local and global contexts, and it showcases girl culture to raise awareness and promote social change. Tiffany Eiselhart serves as Girl Museum's program developer, where she oversees exhibitions, podcasts, community outreach, and social media. She holds a master's in public history from Appalachian State University, and her research focuses on uncovering the hidden history of girls in order to advocate for gender equality. All right, the book. The book that Tiffany and Ashley wrote, which we'll be discussing today, Exploring American Girlhood Through 50 Historic Treasures, showcases girls and their experiences through the lens of place and material culture. Conventional history books shed little light on the contributions that girls have made to society throughout history. But Ashley and Tiffany challenge this oversight by summoning the voices of these neglected figures within American history. In so doing, they bring together a fascinating collection of historic sites, archeological evidence, artifacts, literature, and music to tell a groundbreaking new story of America itself. One that finally showcases the role that girls have played in this nation's history and development. Exploring American Girlhood is a must read as far as I'm concerned for anyone yearning for a more balanced representation in historical narratives. I hope you enjoy our conversation about it today. Ashley Reamer and Tiffany Eiselhart, welcome to the show. Hello, Allison. <laughs> After a very long intro, I warned them both that I had prepared a little bit extra, but they, they just had to sit through it as I, I said all that. So bravo to them already. All right. I wonder, 
If I might ask both of you uh, to begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Where are each of you from originally? Um, I would love to know how you became interested in art history, which is probably a whole conversation we could spend an entire hour on. Um, you might say a little bit too about how both of you became interested specifically in the history of girls. Just give us some of your background, if you would. Okay. I think it starts with Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am originally from uh, the south of the United States. Um, I grew up mostly moving around and um, in the theater is where I kind of became in, uh, fascinated and fell in love with the arts. Um, and then mostly as an adult, I lived in the north. I lived in New York City um, until I needed to do an internship for my master's. And then I found this little place far, far away called New Zealand. And I moved <laughs> to New Zealand in 2002 and have mostly been living here uh, since. And I, I consequently um, completed a new master's uh, at the University of Auckland in art history. And it, it continued sort of the, the movement from theater of sort of the noise of art to the still silent actors on the walls and where I could make up the stories. And so that kind of is, is my, my fascination that got me into art history. But the, the through line of all of that was, was advocacy. So the, the, my theater training always had to do with issues-based kind of um, storytelling. And that carried through um, once I moved into galleries and, and museums and girls' rights, equal rights, feminism, all of that. that that's been since I was born in the early 70s. So I'm a, I'm a free to be you and me baby. And so that's how I was raised. And um, so that's always, always been important. And then in 2009, um, just post crash, I had moved back to New York City to try to find some work and instead found a lot of volunteer work. And um, consequently started Girl Museum. It was just a, a, a synergistic moment of the internet kind of being uh, ready and able to do that sort of a thing and me having the time and um, and just the kind of motivation to to really marry the idea of advocacy with with the art history with the new technology and being able to reach as many as many people as possible and to be able to tell my own uh, tell my own stories tell girls stories um, that I felt just were were not there mm -hmm. and and so through that, I've met some amazing, well, and I say met in air quotes because I've only met <laughs> physically probably about four people that I've worked with out of the hundreds um, since I started Girl Museum because we're virtual. Mm -hmm. And um, but I have had the, the joy and honor of, of meeting Tiffany when she um, came to us to do an internship for, um, I believe it was a credit internship yep. for your yes, master's degree. And um, she volunteered with us and then was amazing and then continued to be amazing. So I'll hand yeah. it to Tiff. Yeah. So uh, I also grew up in the South, uh, specifically Florida, spent most of my life there uh, until I went to graduate school. Um, I was really lucky to have parents who my dad was a lawyer. And so he was always about justice and equal rights. And they really instilled that in me from a young age, but they also instilled this absolute love of history. Um, visiting plantations was kind of a favorite thing. Um, but while I was doing that, I happened to pick up a book by historian Clathman Clinton about uh, the women of plantations and their stories and their history in a way that nobody else had ever said, like even on tours, you, she was the first person I ever read that talked about how plantation women would actually wear their husband's clothes to do work in, or they'd get caught by guests looking like men and dirty and just not polished. So it was this completely different narrative. And that kind of opened my eyes up to, hey, maybe we don't really know everything yet. Um, and then, so when I got into college and then graduate school, I was all about history. I was thinking I was going to be a historian and be surrounded by piles of books and just like hold up in the little crazy professor's office. Um, but this was around 2011 when I entered grad school. So a couple years post crash and they were all like, no, museums are where the money is. It's, it's where you're going to make your career. And, you know, being a, being a professor is just 
you're never going to get there. Uh, turns out that wasn't quite true. Museums have the same struggles <laughs> as being a professor. But um, during that, I had to get credits for my internship. So for my master's, I joined Girl Museum just because I was at Appalachian State University. It's a very rural university up in the mountains. Uh, didn't want to commute. And Girl Museum was the first time I encountered girlhood specifically outside of women's studies. And just through Ashley and all the other amazing women who were working there, I learned so much in the first six months that it just, it, it entered my consciousness and has not left. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, it's just everything I do has been focused on girlhood and the fact that it's just been so overlooked in history. So it feels like, you know, we're finding our own things that women's historians of the 70s and 80s found in their way. Absolutely. I, you know, I feel like I've had an, an awakening or an epiphany similar to the one, Tiffany, that you're describing, and it's totally due to Ashley's work. I, as a, a proud feminist art historian, I almost feel like, how did I overlook girlhood for so long? Or I've even gone back and looked at some of my writing and realized I am endlessly using young women, young women, young women, when I really should have been calling them properly girls. And I don't know why I was avoiding it or not thinking about it deeply enough. And, and this book, the book that you two wrote, Exploring American Girlhood, has continued me on this trajectory, for sure, of, of thinking about girls as girls and, and not as, you know, perpetually becoming young women who, who will have the experiences that women have. And, and I'm grateful to, to both of you for it. This leads me to need to ask maybe a kind of follow-up question about how this book came about. You both kind of already got us a little bit into how you two know each other, and that would have been part of the question. But how did this specifically as an endeavor and with this publisher and so on and so forth end up happening for both of you? So in 2018, we were uh, subscribing to all the HNET message boards, you know, publication calls as we normally do. And we'd been putting out articles and stuff before. Um, but I came across an announcement that the American Association for State and Local History had partnered with Roman and Littlefield to do this new series on exploring American history through material culture. And Coincidentally, at the same time, Ashley and I were talking about this new project that we were calling Great Girls at the time. And we were working on one about America and trying to kind of pilot this. What would it look like if you wanted to take a road trip and see sites related to girls? Ooh, I and, like that idea. Yeah. So we had kind of, we, we were trying to put a spin on it and we were doing some pilot research. We had a couple interns working on it. Um, at the same time that that was happening, our website got hacked and was down for months. <laughs> so we were we were juggling this. Ashley was mostly taking on the website and I took on kind of form we formulated this pitch and we sent it over to Roman and was just like, you know what, shot in the dark, let's just go for it. Maybe this will provide some clarity in our minds of what this great girls project should look like. We got accepted like really fast. Wonderful. <laughs> and oh, so... I always love to hear that, you know, hearing all the nightmare stories that you do about people trying to get books published on important topics like this that go against the grain and they just can't break through. Oh, hallelujah. Yeah. Huge yeah, thank was... you to Roman and Littlefield on this yeah, one. Yes, it was a huge thank you. Also huge, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? <laughs> like we were not prepared for this. We hadn't even decided like how many sites was it going to be and and how many people did we want to talk about and how did we want to structure the book and like all those questions came up and I'm sure Ashley was freaking out as much as I was trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, so it was, while, it was fun. It yeah, was fun. <laughs> it was. And so the the nice part was her and I bring two different perspectives to just about everything. She's the art historian. I'm the public historian. So we see things in completely different lights and that really complements our work. So while she was kind of dealing with the website, I took on a little bit of putting together kind of a preliminary list of what, what sites and things do we already know that would be on this road trip and then expanding it into artifacts because Ashley frequently talks about her time at the Met and you know, you go to the Met and you don't think of all the girls you see there. So it was like, well, wait a minute, what is on view in American museums? There's got to be stuff. So we kind of came up with 
quite a list, if I remember correctly. I think it was far too much for us to ever tackle. Um, but then we we had some advisors helping, and and Ashley, you know, her and I talked a lot, and we whittled it down to fifty. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it, the whittling process was uh, was oh so much fun because it's out of your control, a lot of these things. So um, in some instances, there were girls we thought we wanted to highlight, but then found that there were no objects mm. or sites. So there was an absence there. Then there were stories or vague kind of mythologies we knew, knew of. And we thought, okay, let's find a place or a thing that we can ground this in. And sometimes that existed or sometimes it didn't. And then there's the, the issues of getting the geographic spread. So we had, you know, it's history. So, you know, we did a chronological thing. And so America fraught in terms of who's there, when, and yes. how they got there. And mm -hmm. then all of that. So, so the, we, we tried, um, I think, and succeeded pretty well in the progressions of how the book is structured to show kind of how that, how that happened, but in a, in a different kind of a way, kind of an emotive way rather than event, event, event. Mm -hmm. it, it's more, you know, with um, titles like Reckoning and Hope and Strife. And we, we really tried to paint those kind of pictures rather than, and then she did this and then this happened and da, 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 da. Because yeah, we tried to move away from the sort of, you know, great girls in the sort of elevation of girls, but also kind of poking fun at the great heroes, the great men, because that's just kind of, you know, that's self-made, um, self-perpetuating mythology of America. Um, but in terms of the list, what was really fascinating with it was we would have instances where museums were like, no, <laughs> can't use that. Oh, yeah. Or, or um, several times, I think we got the impression that we were giving them ideas. And so there was, um, yeah, a, a kind of, a, attention there and then there was there were people who just wanted too much money for for this kind of um we thought groundbreaking kind of thing that had such a teeny weeny budget and so there was all of that and and as Tiffany mentioned we had some some people that we went to um I have a, a mentor that I have been working with for a long time uh, via the American Mu uh, Alliance of Museums and she put me onto some amazing women from the National Park Service who had been there for a really long time. Um, and so I went, uh, because this is in the before times, I was able to go and meet with them and actually put the list in front of them and get feedback. And, and it even, it gave us ideas of like how big this could be. I was talking to Ellis Island about, you know, possibility of doing an exhibition related to the mm. book. And like, there was all this great possibilities. Um, you know, before the pandemic. And so, um, so yeah, so, so we, we got the list down and it did change. It kept, it kept changing, it kept changing. Kind of, as we went, when we encountered these challenges um, and we, we divvied the book up really based on our interests, um, which luckily <laughs> really. Don't fell, overlap that much actually. <laughs> yeah, it fell really, really nicely. Um, until we got to the 60s and then we just kind of jumbled it up and we each took on kind of the thing we felt <laughs> yeah. the most connected to mm -hmm. um and there were definitely ones that I was like this has to be in the book and then mm -hmm. it just couldn't be um or it didn't or it fell outside of like we had too many of this type of thing or too, yeah. not enough of that type of thing so there was kind of a balancing geographically um diversity kind of wise um I think for each chapter, we, we tried to look um, at that because it's not that there weren't stories about, I mean, all of these girls were here, you know, present. It's just that their stories weren't captured. Um, and so that was that was the, the, the challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, this is great. You guys are getting, both, both of you are getting well into some of the, the follow-up kind of questions I had. So I might dig a little bit more on some of them, but you know, you do talk in the introduction of this book and maybe I'll pause briefly and just give a sense for our listeners of the, the overall structure of the book. So it's divided into 10 parts and it is overarchingly chronological 
Um, the book spans an absolutely incredibly huge period of time from uh, 9500 BCE all the way up until today. So we're talking about like, what is that, 12, 11,000, 12,000 years yeah. of history. Obviously, you don't hit every moment. And I was glad that you described this uh, as unfolding in a kind of emotive way, because I think that's true. As much as you do move chronologically, i.e. you don't skip around from a 20th century object back to a medieval object and then into the 1800s, you don't do anything like that. But it does have not this unfolding story of America to it or a you know list of great men or great women or great girls instead it's this kind of these eruptions of, of fascinating things that happen in the history of quote unquote America because it's there are moments where America is not a thing that you're talking about so 10 parts and within each of those parts are like little chapters they're really easily digestible they're just a couple of pages each one and you cover between four and six objects in each of the 10 parts overall. Um, so there's a nice flow, a nice kind of steady pace to it. I found it very manageable to read this in the evenings after my day of work was over. Um, I imagine you could also probably read it to uh, your daughter, or girl, girl child or girl identifying child as an inspirational kind of thing. Every night you could read a short one. I think that would be really beautiful. But then capping on either side of the 10 parts, you have a preface, very powerful powerful short preface called Why Girls? Question mark, an introduction called Finding Girls in American History, and then another really beautiful and very powerful, very moving afterward called The Future of American Girlhood. So hopefully that gives listeners a little bit of a taste for what's in the book. I want as a follow-up question now, again, you both were getting us into this a little bit, to ask if you might generally describe the range of quote-unquote historic treasures that you cover in this book, just to give listeners a sense of what's in here, because this is not a classic art history book. It's not painting after painting, and then a sculpture, and then a drawing. Not at all. There are monuments, there are sites, there are objects, there are artifacts. So can, can either one of you or both of you kind of grapple with this question? Just tell listeners, yeah. never having seen the book, what are the objects quote unquote objects that you deal with in here? Um, I'll just start by saying, um, we very much expanded on the idea of what a treasure is mm -hmm. and tried to um, really ground sort of as a girl, what are, your, what are your treasures? And so that's where it was perfectly justified to have a song as we do in uh, the 1960s chapter with Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And although, and then to a burial mound, <laughs> you know? So this is it's a huge, huge range. And I'm sure that um, purists, if that exists, could, could challenge like, what, what did we mean by treasure? But I think, I think we set that out um, pretty well that it was of girlhood, related to girlhood, from girlhood, about girlhood. It, it was all of those um, uh, directions. And, and also, I think we started with ourselves and to go, what, what were our treasures of our, of our girls? <laughs> just, just as sort of a little mini launching point of what, what was important to us. And, and that included both things that we had, things that we experienced, um, th places we went um, and, and places we were inspired by, and also girls who stirred it up. Uh, we, we didn't just try to pick nice things because the story of girls in America is not a love story. It is a fraught and challenging and um, obstacle filled, so to speak, <laughs> uh, uh, story. And so we, we had to, we, we weren't compelled to include that. We just, that's just what it is. So, so yeah, so that's kind of how, um, how I thought about it. Yeah, I think um, coming from a museum point of view, I really used the, the lens we had started developing with great girls that what could you actually physically go see? Um, and I think all but 
one, which is the first chapter upwards on river, you can actually find either where the site is or where that object is on display, or you can even like the song, you can download it today and listen to it. So it was from that point of view about access, because having worked with a lot of educators, we also saw this as a chance to supplement American history curricula and say, you could read a chapter when you're talking about the colonization of America, you can read the Hocahannas chapter and you can tell the true story of Hocahannas and then you can show the statue, you can show portraits, you can show the Disney movie and you can talk about how we've represented girls to the public and what that has led us to think about the potential of girls and women today in America. And I think that's that's really where my motivation comes from as a historian using girlhood is girlhood isn't just this thing you go and you see and it's hung on the wall and it's all pretty. It's something to make you think about who you are and what kind of America are we going to build and leave to the next generation of girls. And so, yeah, just, yeah, I'm looking through the list and Upwards and River is the only one you can't physically go see. And that's because it's a protected archeological site. So we, even we don't know the actual location of this site, but we were very fortunate to get in contact with the archeologists and say, we really want to include this. And some of the things, you know, they may not be on view right now, but this, the uh, people who control access to those things are more than willing to work with researchers, to work with educators and help them gain access in some format so that they can share those things. It's a lot about empathy building. That's, that's sort of our, that's Girl Museum's mission. That's my personal mission um, to use visual representations and material culture to build empathy towards girls, towards their experiences and also in a sort of meta way to challenge our systems and our institutions and our own disciplines to um, reflect on our own practices and how we have treated um, children generally, but girls specifically in collecting, in, um, in story gathering, in, in, and then even in, in display and then in interpretation. So a lot of it is, um, you know, the, the, the lens was looking outward, but also was turned back around on ourselves um, as well. So we tried not to be, you know, too clever by halves, but just to, um, to, have, um, to have those, like you were saying about the accessibility, just in so many different ways um, and for all different types of, of um, purposes and intentions to, 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 to um, have access points to these stories that people could use either those specifically or take inspiration to um, reinterpret their own objects, their own sites um, in their own classrooms, their own stories that they tell. And um, like you were saying, Alison, just the uh, before about reflecting on your own use of, of, the, of the idea of girl or the word girl. And, and that's been such a challenge to begin with, to, to just to look at our own um, assumptions and biases and move, move past them and say, yes, girls are first worth it, which we felt, okay, well, we got the book deal. So <laughs> someone else thinks it's worth it. So mm -hmm. we'll just build on yeah. those levels. Yeah. And I think, I think from that, Ashley, you're, you're also talking about, it's not just about, it's about using empathy for action too. And a lot of what we did in the book, I think challenged us in ways like, you know, I knew the Hocahannas story was not what Disney had told it. I knew that colonization of the Americas was a very fraught history. But some of those chapters, e even the Salem chapter, the, the evidence we started finding and the scholarly work that we were using as our resources and, and, you know, looking both at the primary source documents and at the secondary sources and analysis, some of these things blew us out of the water. I mean, there were calls between the two of us, like, have you read this? Have you seen, like, we can't believe the stories that have been neglected in our national narratives. And so many of them not only surround women, they surround young girls. And that's, in my mind, that's a tragedy. They're bringing entirely new ways of looking at how different people have interacted on this continent 
And that's something that I know the history profession is trying to be more inclusive of. And I think girlhood has, and then this book has really given us a model for how you do that and how you look at something that you think is so innocent or just so ingrained and go, no, actually there's a lot more to the story here. And that story reveals a lot about not only the time that it occurred in, but the way we have interpreted it since then. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that both of you are using the word empathy, talking about empathy building. I have for so long thought that art history as a discipline, as my field and my profession, especially as a professor, that so much of what I'm really trying to do in the classroom and with the readings that I choose in all the aspects of, of it, is exactly that. It's about building empathy. It's about getting people to feel more for other people, whether that's colonized people or the girls that are so easy to overlook and just not even realize existed or think about what their lives were like. And I think I I definitely was struck by so many of the treasures that you cover in this book in terms of these narratives that I, I hadn't realized, you know, aspects that you brought up or uh, in incorrect things that that have come to dominate the historical narrative that surrounds certain figures, but I also felt like maybe it grew a little bit of empathy for for myself in a weird way. Like the the girl, it made me think about my own girlhood and, like you said, the treasures and, and the sights on a road trip that would constitute my my the my own female early female past. This leads me to want to ask you both, it might be a slightly unfair question, do what you can with it. But I wanted, as I was reading, I thought, I kind of really want to ask both of you what your favorite treasure, if you could pick one from this book or two from this book, and this will help also give the readers still a sense of what's in here. I'll go first, since it's easier for me not having written the whole thing. And it's totally arbitrary, but I think my two favorites were the Mary Wright embroidery sample from 1754. Something about that story and the way that you told it um, in terms of girls' educational experience in the 18th century, just so deeply struck home. Maybe it's because I continue to be an embroidery fanatic. It's kind of how I relax. So seeing and thinking about a girl 200 years ago, not quite doing that, it just stopped me in my tracks. And then I will admit to the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but the cachet sanitary puffs from 1934. Oh my gosh, it was a revelation. I just somehow, even as a historian, never thought about the history of sanitary products, pads, tampons, these things. We're having a crisis in America right now where we can't, there aren't enough of these and it's freaking everybody out. And I just never thought about where they came from or what I've thought about what women did in earlier periods, but that struck me as such an important narrative to add in and probably something a lot of people wonder about. So I was very grateful for just those couple of pages. All right, either of you want to volunteer your favorites? All right, Ashley's pointing at Tiffany. We can see each other even though we're, we're only recording She's pointing audio. at me. I know, this is a horrible uh, question. <laughs> just do what you can. Um, so this one actually, it's... I'm a scholar of early America. That's my preferred period. Um, into the early modern period is kind of where I, I, I like to go. Um, I think that my favorite has to be, I, I swear some native Hawaiian is going to whack me over the head when they see me for how I pronounce this, the hyena chapter, chapter two. Um, mm. That one, not only was it so much fun to research, like reading the actual mythology, and there's been a lot of work by Native Hawaiian scholars recently, um, looking back at all their oral histories and their, their ancestral records, but also the songs and the hymns that compromise hula. It was just so wonderful to watch almost what you'd call a renaissance of hula happening in the scholarship. And then to learn that this was of, even though it was open to both genders, it, it's very much a female leaning art form. And the thought that these very young girls would be subjected to 
these huge trials and this huge amount of learning. I mean, we are talking, you, you have to learn your entire culture's history and traditions and not only learn it, but learn how to communicate that through performance, through theater was insane. Like, I can't comprehend the skill and dedication it would take to do that. Um, and then, of course, it's it's so connected to the colonization of Native peoples on this continent. And Native Hawaii is a place where we can see all of that coming full circle. Um, on the continent itself, you get a lot of inter intermingling of tribes. We have a lot of disputes over who is who and who were they then. But Native Hawaii is, is one place where you can kind of see this microcosm of what European colonization did especially to their cultural histories and their art forms and being able to say, you know, you're, we, we go to Hawaii now as tourists and we all attend the Hulu celebration, but man, the, the artistry and the history of that performance is so longstanding and so beautiful. And it's actually a key to figuring out exactly where native Hawaiians came from in their own words. And girls did it. These young girls did it it's a story that stuck with me and I cannot wait to finally make it to Hawaii and actually see that site that's mm, the top of yeah. my bucket list yeah I can understand that actually, right, actually. you can you can feel free to say nope I'm just not going to answer this one impossible I love them all well because I am me I will be doing that but I what I will say <laughs> is um I I don't have a favorite in the sense that my favorite ones are the ones related to um, the two sides of my brain. So the one side is the activist one. So the girls who stood up for things, the girls that took action, the girls that said what they thought at the time and, and um, took chances and took risks. So you have multiple, multiple examples. Um, I would probably say um, Emma Lazarus's um, poems because she is probably one of the most misunderstood of the girls who became a very complicated, difficult adult and is, we don't remember her the way she should be remembered because she became complicated. We just wanna think, oh, she wrote those few words at the Statue of Liberty and that's meant to kind of encompass what she was about, but she was so much more. And, and so that activism, comes right through to where what I will say is my favorite to answer your question um, would be <laughs> the very last chapter because that's the the young girls that um, are right now standing up um, the the water protectors both Mari and um, and Anna Lee um, who in their own ways through different means um, are are trying to affect change and have been affecting change and have done incredible things and taken taken incredible risks to their physical and psychological well beings, and so I think those to me are the ones that um, that speak the the loudest for me, kind of to my girlness and who I would want to be the most, kind of um, yeah. because they're definitely, I mean, not in a jealousy way, but I with most of these I went, God, could I have done this? Could mm -hmm. I have lived this? Could I have achieved this? Could I have survived this? And often I think, no, I, I, I don't know if I've got the strength mm -hmm. for so much of this. Although at the same time, of course we would have, because we would have just done it. That's, that's what we did. That's why we're here. So it's a, it's a complicated answer to quite a simple question. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, the last few days, just in terms of our ancestors how we got here, what they fought for, what they went through, how they suffered. I mean, it it's definitely a moment for, I think, taking that in and gaining strength from it as much as, as hard as it is and, and, um, and as complicated maybe as it is, I think that that can be very helpful for many in this moment. I think this leads me to want to ask, I've been thinking like, where do I ask this? Do I ask this at the very end? Do I build up to it? But we're, we're kind of hitting it and we've been, we've been getting there. We've been talking about advocacy from the beginning and justice and, and rights. And I think it's very clear 
from the start of this book, uh, at least it was for me as someone reading it with an eye to interviewing you and getting, you know, getting to, it's such an exciting thing to talk to the people who wrote it. But it was clear for me that this book has a feminist orientation, I would call it. Um, and that part of the goal here and in writing it and in putting it out into the world is not just introduce objects and sites from the history of girlhood in America, but to really subtly but profoundly refute patriarchal bias, broaden understandings of who and what comprises American history and American identity. Personally, I'm proud to say that I loved this aspect of the book. And I wonder if you might just talk about that element that at least I saw as a really strong aspect of the book. And you can feel free to refute it. I know not everybody wants to be called a feminist. I think some of us are searching maybe for another way to describe the activities and methods that we use in art history and in public history, but um, I was glad to see it. Thank you. Um, I will probably say I am a feminist. Have always been, will always be out there with everyone else saying feminism is the fight for equal rights, plain and simple. It's it's our way of doing that. And feminism brings the lens we need to start looking at things in a more diverse and inclusive way. And it certainly doesn't encompass everything, but I think that's something Ashley and I centered from the beginning. I, I can remember our earliest discussions were it can't be all white girls. It can't be it can't be the dominant narrative. We have to include things that people are going to recognize and store like Pocahontas everybody talks about her but nobody's quite talked about her the way we should talk about her to things that even we we had no idea had happened or objects we I had no idea Patty Joe's doll existed until I started reading the Donner Party and going you know there must have been a girl in there somewhere and then finding out this doll still exists and that it was the one thing she wouldn't let go of during that entire trial, that, I mean, that entire winter. She was one of the last people out of the mountain pass. We took that feminist lens to everything we did every time we reviewed the list. And still every time we, we do any project, I think we bring it to the table and say, what would other feminists think? What would other scholars criticize about this work and ask us to think about? And sometimes that means pulling in other scholars to ask us the hard questions and make us think about what we're doing. But we feel the absolute need to challenge ourselves that way. Yes, and I think what was really uh, excellent about our Tiffany and I's partnership is that we had been working together with Girl Museum and Girl Museum is fully grounded in a feminist POV, like it's not even that, it's a feminist world. Like that is just how we, we do things. Um, it's part of our mission statement and, and how we sort of express that is a pro-girl stance. So that's sort of the, the litmus test of, of everything we do is this pro-girl um, and, and does it exploit or re-traumatize? Like those are kind of the main things they have to pass. And if they pass that test, then it's, then it's a thing that we'll do. And that's things we think about on every social media post from like that all the way up to major projects or publications. Like that's the, that's the, the, the filter that it has to go through. And so I think this book was no different. Um, and, and um, yeah, it's just, it's our practice. It's, our, it's like our living practice as well as our, um, our professional uh, practice. Mm -hmm. I think it felt very much like a living, breathing undercurrent, maybe is the right way to put it. As I read the book, I was always aware of it. It was never a kind of simple history or story or narrative of an object or site that you were presenting. It was infused, it, it breathed, you know, with, with this element of your practice that you both are describing it as, as kind of you know, thick, it's like thick in your blood and it therefore comes out in, the, in, in what you write and how you write it and the things that you present the world with in a book like this. 
maybe I'm shifting gears slightly by asking you to keep going in this direction. And it leads me again to reveal my obsession with Mary Wright's embroidery sample from 1754, which I, are, which I already mentioned. But at the end of that chapter, or chapter entry, I'm not sure how to describe it because they're so, they're so short, it feels weird to call them chapters. So they did feel almost like little, like little journal history entries or something. But at the end of that particular one, there's a line, I don't know which one of you wrote it, I should point out that, that each of these entries and chapters is not, uh, it's not art since 1900, there are no initials at the, the bottom of the textbook chapter indicating which one of you wrote it, which I would also like to kind of ask about. But one of you wrote, quote, in the absence of written records, samplers and later embroidery by girls are evidence that they lived, learned, and loved. And I, I really, I was struck by this line. And I wondered if maybe you could talk a little bit about the difficulties of doing this work in terms of reconstructing histories of girls and narratives of girlhood, sometimes from very far in the past, sometimes from cultures that are very far from current popular American culture, whatever that means. Um, and so much was either lost or in my mind, deliberately destroyed or not preserved. So as historians, you know, how did, how did you do this? I, this is a genuine question. How do you retrieve when this is a history that no one or very, very few have valued over the hundreds of years that comprise yeah. its building? So this is this is a really interesting question because I was I was presenting at a conference a couple of weeks ago and a historian asked me the same thing. Huh? Um, which was it's a really good point to make because historians, art historians, like any any scholar really, we tend to have our little boxes of our disciplines what our methods are and what our sources are. And, and that's what we kind of stick with. A public historian or, or museum study student or any museum curator who's had training really has a benefit of realizing that a source is not just a source. A source is a reflection of the person who made it, of the person who used it, and of the person who's studying it. Sources also come from a variety of different places. So just like all the objects and sites in this book, you can consider almost anything a source. Um, you know, the coffee cup you use in the morning, the Christmas ornaments you hang on a tree, everything that you choose and surround yourself with in life is an expression of who you are or who you want to be or the culture and time that you live in. So when you're researching something like a sampler, um, in Mary Wright's case, the sampler is pretty much all we have. There are some wonderful collections out there where they have multiple samplers made by the same girl, samplers and other embroidery objects made. Some come with letters or documents or even just family memories. Mary didn't have any of that. It's, it's just the sampler. And like many textiles, historians tend to overlook them and say, oh, they're just stitching them from a pattern in a book or doing it at the instruction of the teacher? Well, yes and no, because when you think about an assignment you do in school today, the teacher gives you instructions, but how you execute those instructions can vary. Two children coloring the same coloring page with the same crowns can produce two completely different pictures. That's what samplers are in a way. They're, they're like the coloring pages back then. And the fabrics she chose, the colors she chose, the motifs she chose, the sayings. Even though Mary would have had instruction from her teacher, she would have had some agency to decide what to include. Is it just her name and birth date? Is she leaving space for when she gets married and she's going to write her husband's name in it? Does she want to put a family tree in it and talk about her parents or her siblings? And you run across all of these things when you look at samplers. And that tells us that girls are making choices. And so it's one of these processes where you have to break out of your discipline and say, what do other disciplines consider evidence? 
when we went to talk to archaeologists about the archaeology sites, when we went to talk to museum curators, we said, what sources have you used? What scholars have you talked to? Where did you get the way that you interpret this now so that we can go and look at those sources and see if we find something else? Or do we find the same thing? Or do we find sources that maybe contradict that? I mean, some of these chapters, we had to go really outside the box and look at things that maybe weren't even completely related to the object, but they told us about what was happening around that time and that person. And that starts filling in a picture of what's going on with the person who is using or making this object or creating this site or using the site. And that lets us look at how that specific thing can be taken in a number of ways. And so then we bring the feminist lens and we see the girl in that. So it's, it's a very fluid process. It can feel very daunting, but it's kind of like going back to third grade and watching an Indiana Jones film and you never know what's gonna happen. And it's so much fun. It just, it brings the joy back to our work. And I think that that's the part that Ashley and I get so excited and are texting each other all times, day and night, despite living, I think it's like 14 or 15 hours time difference from each other. <laughs> like I'll wake up and get texts from her and be like, ah, look what I found, look what I found. This is amazing. And you have to bring that joy to it. That, that was the beauty of this book. We got to just break molds completely and have so much fun. It was definitely fun and challenging on so many levels. And I think to, to Tiffany's point, the, the, their, the range of objects and sites that we included in terms of what was known about them is like absolute. I mean, you have um, the, the, the water pump from um, the, the, the very famous story that I'm completely forgetting her name right now. <laughs> Helen Keller, um, Helen Keller. Yeah, Helen, Keller. <laughs> um, Helen Keller, the most famous girl of America. No, you've got, um, and, and, and also um, Shirley Temple, and you have people that are just like names you should know. And um, through to uh, ones that we have had absolutely nothing. And some of the chapter we had to say, we couldn't find anything. Why can't we find anything? Someone needs to do some work on this. Some of it's not, it's not our work to do, but we're, it's our work to point out that, you know, th there are, there's so many um, stories of, of import that, um, that need, need more work done. Um, and that was also part of it. Um, and then with the ones that we knew so much, it was distilling that down and saying, okay, where's the girl in the story that we can't, that we overlook, um, that we, that we overlook for some of the sensationalism of it like the Helen Keller story, like we, we like the, the slap or we like the this, we like, we like the drama of it. And it's like, just, you know, where's the girl? Um, and then there's, there's um, girls like Susie uh, King-Taylor, who was uh, a nurse during the Civil War. And her story is mad when you know how old she was. Like, it's a perfectly legitimate kind of Florence Nightingale-esque story. You're like, if she was 30, this is, makes total sense. But when you find out she was like 15, it's, it's crazy. It blows your mind at the, the um, levels of courage and maturity that, that had to be presented um, because this wasn't that long ago. And I think that's the other thing that we tried to um, relate, like kind of in the quote that you mentioned from the, from the end of the book is that we want to show through the, the, the theme of empathy and all that, that, that we aren't that much different. These, these times and spaces are um, more compressed than we think that, that they are. And, and you know, some people's great grandmothers are still alive who their parents were born slaves. And that's crazy to ever think that you could say to someone that was a long time ago because they're, it's right then. And so, and, um, and I, I live in New Zealand where it's um, a bicultural society where the present is very imbued with the past. The past is here, that, there's no kind of separation. And that's part of how 
a normal everyday conversation goes or any kind of discussion in a in a in a cultural setting um and it's not weird it's just how it is we we accept that that who we are is an embodiment of everything that came before us mm -hmm. and i think that's really um, important in what we tried to show and link through the book and one other thing to to your original question a little of the sausage getting made is that we had a choice when we got the contract of how many things we wanted in it in the book and i believe we had the choice of it being 25 or 50. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I, I right. think they said we could do a hundred too, but that we, yeah. yeah. So no, <laughs> this is as you will know, Allison. This is about word count, and this is and word count is a thing in the academic realm and in the museum realm that's that dictates existence. You can have amazing essays that you've written about you, the research that you've done about a thing, and you have a hundred words on a label, usually max, mm -hmm. sometimes not even that, and in a book where you wanna fit X amount in and make your points and make your, do the thing that you wanna do, <laughs> you get 1100 words mm -hmm. for each section. And, and I think that should not be um, kind of overlooked <laughs> that, that there, are, there are logistical limits and the result of that made it perfect for bedtime reading, mm -hmm. perfect for getting um, just, just bite-sized uh, information to spark interest, and 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 also have it not quite be enough for if you have to write a book report, you know, like like they'll have to go <laughs> look for more. So so there's all kinds of um, ways and means. And I mean, the book was written to inspire. I mean, for us personally, um, Tiffany, you can uh, elaborate more. Um, was for high school girls. Like that was kind of the level, middle school, high school. Not, the language isn't necessarily exactly that. It's not high academic, but it's meant to engage girls and everyone else to to want to find out more about who these these people were and um and how how girls built america mm -hmm. and to like take that on board and say wait a minute we're not just subjects of a state we are participants and um you know we, we're feeling that now yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned word count. It's really, it's kind of funny that it's coming up in this interview. For the last several that I've done, I have been wanting to ask authors sometimes what the word count of some of these books are. And there's, there are a couple of different reasons I'm wanting to ask it, but it's partly because I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast or my, my particular episodes, I should say, um, are graduate students. And I don't remember ever thinking about word count when I was a graduate student. It was always page number, right? You gotta write 20 pages, 25 pages, 30 pages, whatever it is. And then you get to the other side and suddenly it's all about word count. Whether you're publishing as an academic like I am or working in a museum, writing labels, it's always a hundred words, 300 words, 8,000 words, and, and you're always fighting with somebody, or at least I am. I'm always fighting with my agent about how many words this book can be, or fighting with the publisher to get the contract to have 2,000 more words, 3,000 more words, because you feel desperately like you need it to tell these stories, to give them justice, and 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 it's it's an aspect that just goes under discussed. So I'm glad you have kind of set me free. I think I'm gonna start adding that question into future episodes. <laughs> But we are, oh, we are getting up to the end here. I've realized, I'm realizing I've taken up a lot of both of your time, but I want to ask you the traditional last question. Both of you, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to? What do we need to make sure that we see and do to continue our engagement, our advocacy, our striving for equal rights and justice? Ashley, oh no, Tiffany, you go first. Oh, I'm going first. Okay. Uh, so as always, I'm working on Girl Museum, which www.girlmuseum.org. Um, you can find everything. You can find our social media channels. You can find all the projects we're doing. Um, beyond the four to five exhibits we do a year, um, we're ongoing work on what grew from great girls, which is sites of girlhood, and it is a global mapping projects to not only help you create a road trip but basically to map every site 
and every historic home and every statue and monument that is related to girls. Um, we have interns working every semester on adding more entries. Um, you can actually, it's a Google map base, so you can explore the whole world and we've color coded what the types of sites are. And then we're, the interns are working not only on verifying information that you see in the map, but then writing an entry for what we're calling the Encyclopedia of Girlhood. Uh, so taking this, this whole book and this model and saying, let's do it for every country in the world. Let's, let's get that information out there so that everyone can go discover their history. Um, and then personally, I'm actually working, uh, my major project right now is a biography of a young girl who met Benjamin Franklin when she was 18 and then continued to correspond with him till the end of his life and was actually at his side when he died. Um, most people call her Benjamin Franklin's adopted daughter. Uh, the patriarchy has classified her as one of his love interests, even though there is no evidence to that. There's actually evidence that he pretty much adopted her as his daughter. So her life is my next big project. Wonderful. All right, Ashley, what about you? Um, yes, so ongoing, ongoing Girl Museum. Uh, I'm halfway through my dissertation uh, for my PhD. So that is um, the, the sort of Damocles of my head <laughs> um, at, the, at the moment, um, as, as well as lots of other sort of roles that I fill, um, which one is um, I, I'm on the international board of the uh, the board of the international association of women's museums and just um i'd like to say in a timely timely announcement that um one of my colleagues mona home um from the norwegian women's museum uh is launching a virtual exhibition in the next week or so um on stories of abortion history and personal stories of abortion and they've wor been working on this exhibition for quite a long time and i think because of the pandemic they decided to do it virtually which is wonderful for us so we'll all be able to to access it and i don't know if um it'll be something that people can contribute to ongoing um uh, it's probably going to have a life bigger than they anticipated um so yeah so if people want to find that um they can either look up the norwegian women's museum or we'll be promoting it at girl museum as well so i thought that was uh really important to mention um and i'm also working on a book chapter for a book on museum activism so that's, there's a lot of, you know, irons in the fires. You can wow. only imagine, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that information with us. I know I'll be looking forward to looking at that exhibition. I'm glad it's going to be virtual. Reading your dissertation, you know, one of these, one of these ones is lined up to read it for sure. But they sound like great projects across the board. I really enjoyed talking to both of you today about this book. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss it with me. And thank you thank for you. having us. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Lots of fun. All right, everybody, you have been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Ashley Reamer and Tiffany Eiselhart about their new book, Exploring American Girlhood Through 50 Historic Treasures. As always, if you have questions or comments about this episode, you can contact me through my website at allison-lee.com or find me on Instagram at Professor Lee. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>